My guest on Fearless today is the wonderful actress, activist and mother, Deborah Messing. From her award-winning role as Grace Adler on the NBC sitcom Will and Grace, to her latest film about to come out in February with Robert De Niro, to becoming what she describes as an accidental activist, Deborah uses her platforms to create positive change in a number of areas, from women's rights to fighting anti-Semitism to advocating for HIV AIDS treatment and prevention. She's not afraid to speak out and she's somebody that I would describe as the epitome of fearless. So on that note, <laughs> my dear, and I, I just have to say we've been once in a conversation and then we once had the joy of dinner together in New York, which I really yes. enjoyed. But when you think of fear and fearlessness, first of all, when you think of fear, how does it physically manifest inside your body? Oh, you just say the word and my whole body clenches. Mm. I feel it in my chest. I feel myself shrink. I feel my neck get shorter. It just, my whole body just starts to protect itself. So protection is a big one you use. That's Oh, yeah. yeah. Speechlessness or just shut down? I think I, I become, my senses, I become hyper aware. Mm -hmm. Instead of shutting down, I think that I, I'm more on guard. And I think part of that is because when I, I first became famous, it was during a time in Hollywood where the paparazzis would chase you through the streets and mm -hmm. pop out of bushes. So often it was a surprise of them jumping out and mm -hmm. I would be like this and look around, you know. And did you shout or get angry or did you just say nothing? Oh, I got, I got really angry. The turning point for me was I was training to do this movie, Along Came Polly, and I was at the trainer at five in the morning. And I stopped in front of the hedge and I opened my door and I got out and seven photographers jumped out in front of my car with long lens cameras. And I dropped to the pavement because I thought they were guns. Mm. And I was just paralyzed. And then I heard them say, oh, Deborah, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. And I just remember being completely enraged. Mm. And I think that that was, that was a defense mechanism mm -hmm. instead of feeling completely powerless. Mm. You know, the next step for me was rage because that made me feel at least empowered. Yes. That rage is, first of all, I love that movie, Along Came Polly. I, I, it's, oh, it was such a good you. film. It's interesting, that reaction, because I think people do both. I remember once with Susanna, who I used to work with on What Not To Wear, and I was going down a, in a car next to a driver, and I sort of in, maybe overtook him on the inside lane when I shouldn't have done. Anyway, he came out in front of us and stopped his car um, and then got out, and he was a really big man, oh, uh, like really aggressive big man. And Susanna and I got out and... We were both nine months pregnant. Oh, my and gosh. And I went, you fucking wanker, what were you doing? Because <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I was really scared, okay? And this man who was, I thought, just about to mug me, literally turned around and got back in his car and went. So it's very interesting how similar you and I in that, yeah. you know, because it is that shutdown or just that instant is a protection. And I wonder... Because if we go back to when you grew up in Rhode Island, you know, I've read things about and we've discussed this, but you were one of very few Jewish people in your community. And mm -hmm. was it that early on, do you think, that your strength to be vocal came or had that not started yet? 
Oh, gosh, no. My memory of my childhood was being fearful all the time mm-hmm. from a very young age. We lived in Rhode Island on four acres of land. I was convinced someone was going to come in from the forest and stab me to death. So that was number one. Was that just because you lived slightly remotely? Yes. Yes. But, you know, it's like I'm sure some therapist would have some analysis about the fact that it was a knife and not something else. And anyway, that was my perpetual thing. But because I knew from second grade that I was different and it was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. At the time, I couldn't put words to it, but now I realize that I felt physical danger all the time. For how many years is this? Until I went to college. So like 15, 17, 18 yeah. years? Yeah, I went to college, and I went to a college that had a large Jewish population. And so I realized when I got there what safety felt like and that I had never felt it before. For people listening, Deborah who are not in a minority, just to imagine, because that level of always being on because you might be attacked must have real repercussions for the feelings and attitudes you had as you grew up. So of all those feelings and attitudes that you developed as a result of that, which ones have stayed with you and which ones are you relieved have left you through maybe work on stuff, et cetera, or how, just, you know what I'm going, where I'm going with yeah. this. Yeah. yeah, I think the thing that I took with me for most of my life as a result is anxiety, hmm. like severe anxiety, physical anxiety, which would then make me tired all the time. Mm-hmm. I just thought that I had, you know, a fragile immune system and yeah. that I didn't have endurance But since the work I've been doing, I feel like I'm able to handle my anxiety much more. And I feel as a result, I have more endurance. Mm -hmm. Do you have more than endurance, though? Because endurance is just coping mechanism. Is there something where that work you've done has actually gone to a more positive change than just endurance? Because that's like a holding pattern, isn't it, endurance? When I say endurance, I mean literally solely physically. Okay. So, solely, can I make it through through a 14-hour day shooting? Yeah. You know, will my body withstand it? And the anxiety was draining so much out of me that it was working against me. I finally, how long ago was this? It was the movie Lucky You with Drew Barrymore and Eric Banner. Eric Banner. Oh, yeah. He's so sexy. So sexy. Oh. And that was the turning point for me in terms of standing up for myself saying, I don't care what people think about me. Mm -hmm. My people pleasing at that point, for the first time I was able to sublimate it and say, you know what, I don't care. This Mm -hmm. is wrong. I'm leaving. So what stage is this of you? So have you finished Will and Grace at this stage? Um, No. So you're kind of in that hyperactivity in your career, that phase. Yes, but it was later on where... I felt that I had been validated by the industry. Mm. So I felt like I had been accepted and that I was deemed viable. And I think because of that, I was able to stand up for myself in a Mm -hmm. way that I I hadn't for, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 years prior to that. So that feeling of just letting go, which is a place we all want to get to and people following this podcast, like, how can I feel less full of fear? And... I, similarly to you, I, funnily enough, hit it when I was 51. It took Mm -hmm. me a bit longer. 
in terms of not worrying what people think. But the freedom of being in that position allows you to make decisions with faith and not fear. You know, I still have fear. And when I have fear, I'm anxious and I can be angry around people. That's how my fear will manifest itself. But it's like when we look back, are there ways we can look back and think, are there things I could have done to get me there earlier or that I could pass on to other women to say, hey, if at this stage you looked at this or did this, you could have got there earlier than me? Would there be anything you'd say in that? Well, first, I just want to clarify for your audience that I didn't just let go of my fear. It wasn't overnight. It mm. wasn't simple. Yeah. You know, when I stood up for myself, I still was terrified mm -hmm. that I had sort of broken this code of behavior that in my mind was set as appropriate. And it was only through surviving it and realizing that the world didn't end, gaining my courage a little by little until finally now in my 50s, I really don't care. And I have to say, I, I, sadly, I think part of it comes with age. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think at 25 mm. there would be any way for me to get to a place where I didn't care what people were thinking of me because in your 20s, you're still trying to, you're still discovering who you are mm. and what your purpose is in life. And you require guidance and instruction and opinions. And pain and pain. And pain yeah. and all the things that help you learn and help you force you to make decisions to take the next mm -hmm. step in your life. Mm -hmm. I think it's the old cliche of really trying to stay in the moment. Yeah. And that's something that I'm working on right now. I'm built to be looking towards the future mm -hmm. to try and plan and structure things because I have a very full life. Mm -hmm. That leads to worry. Yeah. And, you know, I, th I think that if I had learned earlier to really honor just what is happening right now today in my life, I think I would have been happier. Mm -hmm. And I think I would have been spared a lot of pain. Yeah. There is the adage, 99% of everything you worry about never happens. And I have lived in a place of projecting so much. And the only thing that helps me with that, which I do intermittently, is practicing mindfulness in some form. You know, so mm -hmm. I, I read Titnut Khan, The Road to Mindfulness, and that just, you know, when you're washing your hands, focus on washing your hands, smell the soap. You know, those simple back-to-basic steps where it quietens my mind and then I'm not picking up 19 spinning plates that will increase my anxiety and worry and fear and things are put in perspective. So it is the one, I think what you say, it's one of the most important things. I literally just returned from a meditation retreat. Okay. You're my really down first, the road. I haven't done that yet. <laughs> it's, it was my first mm -hmm. in my whole life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was revelatory. I was scared going into it, but I was also really proud of myself because when I told people I was doing it, everyone who knows me was like, there's no way you're doing that by yourself. You're not going to Tennessee by yourself and going to, like, and you don't know what you're walking Did into. Did you know anyone there? No. You literally went, not even with a friend saying, come join me on no, this trip. Nothing. I, that's impressive, Deborah. How many of you? The first four days, it was 50 of us. Mm -hmm. And then the second four days, it was 120. God. All strangers. Strangers. Yeah. And I just felt like, okay, I'm going to try things differently today. You know, I know what I normally would do. I would look at that and say, oh, I can't do that. 
I, I have social anxiety. I can't walk into a room with 120 people that I don't know who, some of whom may know me mm-hmm. and that'll, you know, I don't know what came over me, but I was like, I'm going to try and do it differently. And I'm going to just take a risk. And what's the worst, the worst thing that can happen? And I came out of it feeling really a new sense of joy mm. because I felt like there was more possibility. There's more possibility for me now. Yeah, that's so powerful. Because I do think that we stick to patterns that we know and that we think we're comfortable in. Mm-hmm. I just saw um, Sweeney Todd on Broadway and there's this this young girl who's locked away and she sings a song about a bird in a birdcage and how the bird can sing all day and doesn't have to worry about predators and is fed and life is so easy. But if you open the door, just imagine what that bird would discover if it was let free. Mm. And that really stuck with me. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that now. Makes me want to spare the time and make the effort. We never have to stop learning. No. No. Deborah, I want to ask you something personal because it's brought to mind by all the pictures behind you on the wall. Mm. On, and when I moved house recently, I'd been living in a place where I didn't have many personal possessions apart from on the floor where my dressing room was. And so when I moved house, by my bed, I have a bookshelf like that full of all the photographs I hadn't maybe had out for a few years. And I look at them and I think different things. So I'd love you to turn around and just pick two pictures, and it's going to sound weird, one that makes you sad about something and one that just fills you with joy. And there's many, I'm sure, that fill you with joy. Yes. Okay. This is a picture of my mother and father in London when they were visiting me when I studied my junior year abroad. Mm -hmm. And we went up to Camden Market and we got chips. And my mother was the happiest she's ever been in her life because she loved chips. And it makes me sad because I lost my mother unexpectedly and quickly. And um, so she's not here anymore. And Mm -hmm. so when I look at this, I just remember the stability that I felt with both of them together. As a a unit, yeah. How long ago did you lose her? 2014. Yeah. She was 71. Mm. Yeah. And she was diagnosed with cancer, and 30 days later she was gone. Yeah. Yeah, it was fast. So this makes me, it makes me smile, though, which is why I think it's a great photo. Because, and then, don't look at my butt. Um, This is a picture of of me and two of my girlfriends at her house on Nantucket Mm -hmm. a couple of summers ago. I just want to say for the audience, first of all, that the previous one, your mum was in lovely 1980s clothing and they look so happy in that picture because for those people who can't see it in this one, it's three girls looking like they're having a blast in the summer, all with lovely suntans and the best teeth I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, And we're all in summer dresses mm. and... It just was one of those weekends. It was 4th of July weekend. And the hostess was just the most generous host I've ever experienced in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was just joy. And there were there were games and there were activities. And do what you would do. If you want to, you can join. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to, you, mm-hmm. you know, like no pressure. Mm-hmm. And then there would be like 
clam bakes and the whole thing was just heaven. And I look at that picture and I just, I just remember literally having no stress, yeah. zero. Yeah. And not worrying about a thing, just enjoying the moment and really feeling really, really so much gratitude. Yeah. That's wonderful. I want to go back to something that we touched upon when we first chatted, but for those people who are listening who didn't hear that conversation, and it reminds me, I'm prompted by seeing the picture of your parents and the words you use when you say, they were so powerful for me as a unit. You know, mm -hmm. I, I presume your father's still alive, but that sense of a unit. And you have a son who's now, how old is he now? 19. Oh my God, same age as Lila. I forgot, we got to get them together. That's another sidebar. And, and, <laughs> and you're no longer with his dad. No. No. Okay. So in a sense, do you consider yourself a single parent or not? Oh, I've, I've been a single parent for, yeah, almost 10 years. All right. So I want to talk about this thing, how, because I think we've had the conversation, about when we put the fears we have into how we bring up our kids, because yeah. I think it's an interesting conversation. And we did yeah. touch on it before. But when you said this comment about the single unit, because, you know, Lila, for the last 10 years, you know, I've been a single parent because her father died. And that sense of the responsibility of the decision as a primary parent, maybe, because if mm -hmm. they live with you, I think you're the primary parent. And what of your own fears do you think you put on to your relationship with your son, which are your fears and not his? You know, I've thought a lot about this mm. because I was hyper aware of, of my anxiety. Mm. And people would joke about it and be like, oh, you're just like a neurotic Jew. You know, <laughs> it's just it's just who you are. I have that's you from know? neurotic Jews, as it were. Yeah, uh, not yeah, from, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's just a delightful part of who you are, yeah. you know which is not the case. <laughs> and I have found myself stopping myself when I have an instinct to interact with my son in a way that would be reflective of my fear or my need. Mm. How, how often do you think you catch it? I'll give you an example. Yeah. He just left for college for the first time, mm -hmm. right? And I thought I was ready for it. <laughs> yeah, because there's Deborah doing a very fake smile now because any woman will, will listen to this and go, you're smiling? If they could see you, she's smiling, but, th but there's a lot behind that smile, yes. Oh my gosh, I thought I was ready and I clearly wasn't. I was bawling and I came home and I spent the next two weeks on my couch. I couldn't talk to anybody and I just felt like I was in mourning. Mm. And I realized, oh, I've known what he's eaten, when he's gone to the bathroom, where he's going next. And literally right now, I have no idea. Mm. I don't know mm. where he is. Mm. I don't know if he's sick. Mm -hmm. I don't, and, and it just felt like, oh, an entire part of my life is over. And then I, of course, changed it into, okay, a new chapter be is beginning. This is exciting. After the two but weeks I, on the sofa, but there's a lot yes. to process in this. So that's oh. not a quick transition. No, no, no. It's it's an incredibly difficult transition. And but I have my girlfriends, they have daughters. Mm. And so their daughters are older. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen them through college and they call their mother like three to five times a day. Mm. And I was like, I know my son, that is not gonna fly. And so he left and I 
for the first week, I was anxious because I wanted to call him, but I didn't want to like suffocate him and I mm -hmm. wanted to give him like space. And mm -hmm. so I, I called him and I said, I need to talk to you. And he said, okay. And I said, look, I need your guidance. You know that if it were up to me, I would call you three times a day. And he said, thank you for your restraint. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, um, I said, look, the, the bottom line is I never, ever, ever want you to look at your phone and see mm. mom and go, oh, so I need you to tell me what you are comfortable with, how often you feel you would feel comfortable talking. And he was like, I think, I think once a week's good. And I, <laughs> what did you feel inside at that point? What did you feel inside at that point when he said that? I, I literally inhaled and I held my breath because I just was like, oh, wow. I didn't expect that. And he was just like very calm about it. And, and I was like, okay. And I'm thinking, Deborah, you are the one who asked you are the one who is saying, you know what, he, this is, he's an adult and treat him like an adult. Mm -hmm. So I said, um, okay, okay, okay. What about texting? He said, oh, you could text. And I was like, okay, okay. And he said, thanks, mom. Mm -hmm. Like he was thankful mm -hmm. that I was thinking of him in that way mm -hmm. instead of doing the mom thing of, okay, you have to call me, you know, you have to call me every week. You have to do this, blah, 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 which my brother did to his three daughters at Brown. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm paying for your college. You have to, I have to hear your voice every day, period. And they did. Mm. So I think that's an example of where the old Deborah would have been like, no, you know what? You are going through a very, very big change. You have to meet, make all new friends. You don't know your roommate. Mm. We, we need to talk, you know, every mm -hmm. day just to check in, see if you need anything, see if there's anything I can do to make, to f make you feel supported. Like all of that mm. would have been my go-to. Go -to. Yeah. You know, I, I honor it. I get sad. I get sad when I, you know, hear my girlfriends talk about their daughters, mm. you know, calling regularly. But then, uh, you know, I'm like, boys and girls are different. Yeah. And I have no doubt of how close my son and I are together. Mm. Just every, you know, I mean, we, we've traveled the world together. We laugh together. It's a beautiful relationship. Yeah. So I have to trust it. Yeah. It's like giving somebody a chance to miss you. You know? Yeah, and that's sort of then the best way. It's like you never want to be the pursuer in a relationship, or whatever. It's just you want to give them a chance to miss you. I want to ask you something, which I think I think we also have thought about, and, and similarly, uh, this idea of when you're in a role and you have a finite contract. So anyone who doesn't know what they'll be doing this time next year kind of feeling. And, yeah. and you know, you chose to go into a career, Deborah, where that is the epitome of allowing a ton extra bit of fear to come in. And I went into TV, which is similar in that way, like in August, will the contract be renewed with you? Will the series be renewed? You know, with me, journalistic contracts, will they be renewed? And that then the conversation we and the dialogue we have with ourselves around 
at that time, I think, how good our self-worth is to think, of course they will, because I'm brilliant at what I'm doing, or I'm so shit, they're going to find somebody else. So talk me through that, because you've had that probably, I imagine, in your career a bit. I would say that after the second season of Will and Grace, I felt very comfortable that our contracts would be renewed over and over and over again. Mm. So I remember very clearly having that source of anxiety being taken away Mm -hmm. for a couple of years and feeling very grateful for it. You did how many, 15 years of Will and Grace? We did did eight, and then we came back for another three. Because you'd done lots of things before, but was that the thing that made you suddenly have this recognition, perhaps, in terms of walking down the street recognition? Oh, yeah. You know, amplified hugely. And how was that feeling? I mean, when you talked about the kind of machine gun, perhaps. It was very, very hard for me. I think, it, you know, we're, we're not meant to have that much attention put on us. Mm-hmm. Like human beings just are not built for that. It's not natural. Mm. And for it to happen so quickly, you know, the second season is when we won best comedy of TV show. Yeah. So, so the was, Emmys were it, calling and it, it, it really was, felt yeah. like it was it was pretty much overnight. Yeah. My husband would act like a Secret Service agent. Mm-hmm. Like he, I would be walking and I would be looking down and literally just trying to have blinders on because I knew if I looked up and I got eye contact with someone, they would recognize me. Mm. I mean, I did grocery shopping at one in the morning. God. And I still had people following me through the supermarket at Mm. one in the morning. Mm. So that was when I felt the most vulnerable. Mm. And I got into therapy right away because I was just like, I don't want to leave my house. Mm. How is that now? Like when you walk down the street in New York now, because... I love New York because New Yorkers... They they, they don't give a shit. They don't care. No, they don't give a shit. Yeah. You know, they they recognize me, Mm -hmm. you know, and they'll they'll yell at me from a car or someone will walk by and be like, oh, that was Deborah Messing, Mm. you know, and they'll stop and they'll be like, hey, hey, Grace, you know, and it, it doesn't feel like there's any physical concern. It's just an acknowledgement. How do you feel in your mind... And I think I can say this without offending you, that you're still most recognized for a role that you did quite a few years ago. How does that make you feel? Um, it makes complete sense to me mm-hmm. because it was such an iconic show. And I think because of the political and social impact it had, it made it even that much more iconic. Mm. Uh, until my dying day, I will be Grace. Um, yeah. But it's also interesting, you know, like now I'm realizing now that I'm middle-aged, I was just at this retreat and at the gift shop and there was this, this young woman and she was, she was like, oh my God, oh my God. And she said, Laura, you're Laura, Mysteries of Laura. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that, whoa, <laughs> that was like three so, seasons, yeah. three series later. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he may, he may not even know, know me that you were great. Yeah, that's kind of, I, I like that when that, I mean, I get, you know, I don't have your paparazzi extents, but I've had moments when it what not to wear. It was really, 
you know, I just had a baby, I came out and there were all these paps in my garden and just talking of, you know, there she is in her horrible sweatpants. I, you know, I just give, I just literally give birth two days before. To people now who don't know what not to wear, which is probably the show I'm most known for, and then just say, oh, I love your closet confessions. I was in Topanga Fair and there was this woman who was parking cars and she, I turned up, she goes, hey, Trini, I love closet confessions on Saturday. And I'm like, in the <laughs> middle of Topanga. It was just hilarious. But yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting one. But I want to ask you, I want to go back and I want you to be really specific with you because I ask this to everybody, Deborah, in, in the podcast, is what was the exact moment that you have been most scared in your life? Oh, I think it was when I found out that I had a stalker in New York mm. and the police came because this man showed up at my doorman building and he said that I had invited him and that he was spending the day with me and Roman. He, he referenced my son mm. and that scared me in a completely different way because there was no one-on-one -on -one interaction with this person. Hmm. Um, when you first asked, I, uh, you know, I would have said Times Square, being in Times Square and having to walk through with people like pushed up mm -hmm. against my body. And I felt so scared. And I, I started to have a panic attack, mm -hmm. you know, my breathing and I started sweating and, you know, by the time I got through, I got into my trailer and I, my hands were physically shaking. Mm. And it was all in my head because there wasn't an actual threat. Mm. It was just, you know, a conglomeration of all of the memories I've had of being in crowds when I have been touched mm. or someone's jumped on me to hug me from behind and I, you know, and they've pulled my backpack back and mm. you know when things like that happened but nothing was actually happening mm. but I just felt like I cannot be here I cannot be here mm. and uh just two weeks ago I walked through Times Square by myself and I had that moment in my head I'm like good girl good girl Deborah you did it and I was going to a play and I was like you know what let's do things differently let's try mm. And, you know, I got halfway through and, you know, someone recognized me, someone whose daughter was screaming and they started walking quickly toward me. And, you know, my breathing changed and I started walking quickly and I just yelled back, you know, thank you, but I, I have to go to a play, you know, mm -hmm, to let them mm -hmm. know that I, I, I don't want to interact. Mm -hmm. But by the time I got to the play, I just felt like, you know what, that's a win. Mm. I think having... Such a strong voice now in activism around anti-Semitism, etc. Must, you know, sometimes we need a something more than just ourselves as a singular person in which to have the strongest voice. A thousand and, percent. Yeah. So, so to be able to publicly discuss when it was so difficult for you as a young actress in Hollywood to discuss when somebody was saying, "Hey, your nose is shit and it's ruining my movie," which I just find an appalling thing that anyone would ever say. And today, obviously, it would not be said. I don't know. But like, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, let's, I, I mean, know. we could do a whole other podcast on that, on, on where we think people got to, but not. But when did you first feel, so that sense of, I am a Jewish woman and I 
don't think there's enough, you know, there's some very strong, wonderful, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who have had a very strong, powerful voice as a Jewish woman. But what made you first think, I want to be one of these Jewish women and I can find my voice in this because I can talk behind something I feel so passionately about? Um, fear. <laughs> really? That, that was the impetus. Explain, that was explain the, that. That was the impetus. I think it was when Trump was running for office mm -hmm. and when he got into office and, you know, just really turning up the gas on intolerance mm -hmm. of everybody who is not, you know, a white man. Yeah. And seeing, especially in the last two, three years, the incidence of violence against Jewish people just raise exponentially. Mm -hmm. It felt like there were all these people who hated Jewish people, but they were quiet about it because they knew that it wasn't civilized mm -hmm. to be open about it. And then their president said, oh, no, it's okay. You can be open about it. Gave and everyone, And then everyone came out yeah. of the woodwork. Yeah. And so it felt like, oh, my goodness, this is as bad as it was in 1935, which I never imagined could possibly happen in my lifetime or ever again. And so I think it was that fear that made me feel like, all right, Deborah, it's time to step up. And it's, it was only recently. And I realized how much I kept it under the rug for most of my adult life. Mm -hmm. Like that thing Permission about in speak. elementary school, mm -hmm. you know, like it was there. It was important to me that Grace was Jewish mm -hmm. and I encouraged sort of highlighting more and more her Jewishness because I just thought that was an opportunity. Mm -hmm. But I do think that seeing the divisiveness in this country just gutted me on so many levels mm -hmm. that I started to speak out and I started to speak out on Twitter, mm. which of course is a safe place to speak out mm -hmm, from. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer on Twitter, by the way. I, Why? Because of my mental health. Because you I, said you started that sentence though with "it's a safe place to speak out," so it wasn't safe, so safe for you if your mental health was so affected. It's safer than saying it face to face to someone or mm -hmm. saying it on camera. Yeah. But I've been very politically active my whole life. And mm -hmm. so I worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign and I worked on Joe Biden's campaign. And so we all use Twitter as a way to sort of share values mm -hmm. and policy mm -hmm. ideas and mm -hmm. things like that to try and say, okay, you have a choice. It's this or this. I just want you to know what those choices are. Mm -hmm. And the hatred that would come back at me, the virulence, and within that, the anti-Semitism and the misogyny, it just was relentless. And instead of recognizing right away, oh, this is not going to work for me, mm -hmm. I doubled down. Mm. I was like, you know what? This is ruining our country. I'm not going to let you bully me. I'm going to double down. And I, it got to the point where I was on Twitter like, eight hours a day. Oh and God. I was working full time at the same time. Mm. Like I would be on Twitter till three in the morning, countering, trying to have 
a dialogue with people who did not agree with me. Or, or and, were incapable of having a dialogue as well, let's face well, it. Well, that's, that's the thing. Not, it, it, it was impossible, but I just kept saying, well, if I word it respectfully, if I do it this way, then we can have a conversation and maybe, you know, something can change. But mm-hmm. it was a fool's, you know, it just, it, it wasn't possible. No. Yeah, so I just felt like, you know what, that's not a good place for me because I, I'm passionate, you know, yeah. and so, so like what, you said... So what makes you, what makes you feel most powerful? Because Swisher at the beginning I felt was that, but what really makes you feel most powerful? My voice. Mm. Yeah, using my voice in places that where it can be effectual. Mm. You know, it's like I'm going to Rwanda in July and I'm speaking at a women's leadership summit. Mm-hmm. I was at Vital Voices in DC last month, you know, and that's global women leadership and being around other women who have been vocal and fearless mm-hmm. for decades inspires me to try and find the courage inside of me mm-hmm. to speak the truth and to and to be authentic. I think the scariest thing in the world is to be your authentic self. Mm-hmm. It's such an overused term too, and in its, it sort of in a way diminish what I think it means. If you thought of three women who you felt are the most fearless women, can be dead or alive, but I just want you to give me three of your favorite fearless women. Ruth Gader Ginsburg. Yeah, for sure. Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. Just because I just saw this series called A Small Light. I think it's on National Geographic. Mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful show. So she's at the top of my mind right now. Mm-hmm. And I have to say Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it it's not because of any of her policies. It's because she just never gave up. People always underestimated her. People always disrespected her. She just kept going. Mm. And looking at her trajectory, I, I would, I would have given up decades ago. If you were, you know, somebody comes up to you and they go, I have this dream. I really want to do it. But I'm so scared of the unknown. And therefore, they're just not pursuing it. What advice would you give them? I would say, life is unknown. You can have the most stable job in the world. And it's still going to kick you on your ass. There's still things that are going to happen that you are not going to see coming. You're not going to be able to control. So if you are looking for being able to control something and you're making your life decisions based on that, I think you should reconsider it. I feel deeply that if you are passionate about something, then it's like a soul calling Mm -hmm. that you have to honor it. Mm-hmm. and you have to try, and you have to pursue it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a profession. Mm-hmm. It could be a hobby, but if it's a true passion, I think that you will always say what if and have regrets for the rest of your life if you don't try. Mm. It's slightly also coming back to your bird in the gilded cage. You know, yeah. You don't know what's on the outside. You don't know. Yeah. Deborah, thank you, darling. Let's give it up for Deborah Messing. (laughs) That was lovely. Oh, Trini, I, I think you're the best. It's great to talk to you. 
What I found amazing about Deborah's story was how eloquent she was in describing that physical sense of fear through her life. And maybe because Deborah went into the acting profession, her ability to communicate that feeling was so powerful. And just when she was very small and feeling so different and standing out from the crowd in her community, which wasn't her community, I think I wasn't aware of the extent in which she was hounded by the paparazzi and just, you know, when she was saying it was like a machine gun when she, when she came out the house, I was like, you know, that happens to very few people and they're just celebrities, but just it helped me put myself in that situation and just imagine what that was like. And I think also just how long Deborah has struggled with fear and how it's still in her life today, but she manages to work through it and how she has channeled a lot of those feelings into positive change, into standing up for people who don't really have a platform in which to stand up and therefore she uses her platform to do that. And her relationship with her son I really identified with strongly. I think that just being the sole parent of a single child and I loved, I loved her story of, you know, getting this permission from her son when he went to college about when she, how often she, she could call him and thinking he'd come up with a totally different answer when he goes, that sounds fine, mum. And her sort of thinking, my God, that's where we're at. You know, just that realisation, there's a time in which you have to let your child go so they can find their own life. And there's a fear in that too. Um, it was such a joy to talk to her and I really resonated with so much she said. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening. Until next time.